Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. Revelation chapter 13 is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It describes the rising of the beast of the sea. Let's talk about it coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are looking at Revelation chapter 13, and we are still in the halftime of John's vision, where he is spending time in the last couple of chapters explaining what is happening on earth, especially the rise and the development of a world power and how that world power, that world government, and its actions are pivotal to what's going on during the time of Jacob's distress, that seven-year period of God's judgment upon the earth. So let's start looking at Revelation 13, and let's see how the beast of the sea arises. Now, I'm going to start reading in chapter 12, verse 18, because like we said last week, that that sentence better flows with this chapter. Then he stood waiting on the shore of the sea. And now in my vision, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and 10 horns with 10 crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had bear's feet and a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave him his own power and throne and great authority. Now, the first thing I notice is how this is a lot like the prophecies of the world powers in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, it says this, And I was looking at the horn. Suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were wrenched out, roots and all, to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So that little horn is doing basically the same thing that is going on with this beast that has arisen out of the sea. It is blaspheming God. It is boasting. It is putting itself above God. And notice how in verse 2 it says, This beast looked like a leopard. And But it had bear's feet and a lion's mouth, and the dragon gave him his own power and throne and great authority. So what exactly is this beast? Well, we can deduce from that verse that whatever it is, is some type of governmental power because Satan, the dragon, gave him his own power. So he's empowering whatever's going on here. Now, if you remember last week, we said that the key to understanding the different beasts in the book of Revelation goes all the way back to Daniel's prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, he starts a series of very similar visions talking about different world powers, and they always are being symbolized by a beast. Beasts in the book of Daniel always represent mega kingdoms, 
a huge kingdom that has several subordinate kings that are giving allegiance to the top king, the top ruler. Today, we would call these empires. An emperor or whatever title you want to take on, the emperor would be ruling over this vast land of different kingdoms. And each kingdom is delegated to the king there to run things. So beasts are the mega kingdoms or empires. And the head in Daniel, we always saw that the different heads of the beasts talk about the different divisions of the empires. For instance, like we used our illustration last week, if you were an emperor of six kingdoms, then a beast that represented your empire would have six heads. And of course, the horns represent vassal kings. Like I said earlier, the kings that you have delegated the authority to administer over these six kingdoms. So in your case of this example, if you're the emperor of an empire that has six heads or six different divisions or kingdoms that you have conquered, then you would most likely dele delegate the authority to run those six kingdoms to six vassal kings. And that would be represented by horns. And crowns, of course, signify that that horn has authority and is ruling currently. If you ever see a horn without a crown, it's talking about a vassal king that has not yet taken authority. He is waiting in the sidelines, so to speak, in the vision. So that's the key that we have learned from Daniel chapter 7. Now let's apply that to what we've seen in Revelation 13. Obviously, this beast represents an empire, a worldwide government. It has seven heads and ten horns. So this is uh, seven divisions, you might say, of this empire, and it has ten horns. Now, why are those numbers different? Well, let's compare this to the dragon that we talked about in Revelation chapter 12. In fact, uh, there's three beasts that you can see in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to put a graphic up right now so you can follow along. But this chart will show you that these three different beasts have similar characteristics, but also major differences. In Revelation chapter 12, we see not a beast, but a red dragon. And the Greek word is very specific. It literally means a dragon. Whereas in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, it literally means a wild beast. So in Revelation 12, you have a red dragon. In Revelation 13, you have a beast from the sea. And in Revelation 17, you have what is called in that chapter a scarlet beast. So let's look at the different colors. In Revelation 12, it says the red dragon, but if you look at the Greek again, it literally means a fiery red. So that's kind of, to my mind, kind of an orangey, red, like fire. In Revelation 13, no color is given. In Revelation 17, it uses a different word, and it very specifically means scarlet, a bright red. In Revelation 12, we see that the red dragon has seven heads, and there's crowns on these seven heads. In Revelation 13, this beast from the sea has seven heads, but no crowns. In Revelation 17, 
we see that the scarlet beast has seven heads, no crowns. In Revelation 12, we see that the red dragon has ten horns, but no crowns on them. Revelation 13, we see that the beast from the sea, just like we read, has ten horns, and each of these horns have a crown on them, ten horns with ten crowns. And then in Revelation 17, the scarlet beast just has ten horns. No crowns are mentioned on the heads or the horns. This shows that there is some similarities within these beasts that arise, these governments, but they are a lot like, they look a lot like the red dragon. And like I hinted at last session, the reason there's similarities is because of a basic rule, like father, like son. So Satan, who is empowering this beast, just like it says in verse 2, the dragon gave him his own power. This beast, this world empire, will look a lot like Satan. In other words, it will pattern its policies after a lot of other empires that Satan has backed. In Revelation 12, we see the seven heads that had crowns on them. And like we discussed last week, that signified seven empires, seven world empires that Satan had backed and had ruled over Israel with, trying to either destroy Israel or attack Israel or rule over Israel and suppress Israel. But they all had one factor in common. They ruled over Israel. And they were seven empires that were based on ungodly principles, uh, idol worship, false gods. And it was clear they were all based on Satan's power and were very evil many, many times in history. Now, this beast in Revelation 13 is based and empowered by Satan. This is one of his empires. And notice that this beast has seven heads, but no crowns on those heads. And it has ten horns with the crowns. So this beast is an eighth empire. This beast is the eighth, eighth empire that comes about that Satan is empowering to go against Israel, to rule over Israel in the last days, the time of Jacob's distress. So this eighth empire backed by Satan is the beast. It had seven divisions in the past. This eighth version has ten divisions. It has 10 kings, 10 horns with crowns on them. This goes back to Daniel's prophecy of the 10 kingdom confederacy that we discussed in detail back when we first started talking about the first seal. So this is this world government. It is the 10 king confederacy that Daniel prophesied about that would be in power when Jesus came to set up his kingdom. And now look what else it says about this beast in Revelation 13. It says that it looks like a leopard. So it has the body and uh, coloring of a leopard. In Daniel, the leopard signified Greece. So this world power will be like most Western countries today 
It will be based in a lot of Greek um, philosophy and Greek political theory. It will try and call itself a democracy, I think, but in reality, it isn't a democracy. It is a sovereign state and empire. It says the beast looked like a leopard, but it had bear's feet. Now, again, Daniel has the key. Bear always was representing the Medo-Persian Empire, Persia, which today is Iran. Today, could it represent Russia? Because Russia is known as the great Russian bear. Possibly. We don't know. But in Daniel, it kind of, the beast there that looked like a bear was related to Persia. Modern day Iran. Now, what about the lion's mouth? It says it has a mouth of a lion. Well, the lion was always used as a symbol of Babylon in the book of Daniel. Today, modern-day Babylon is Iraq. Now, since it's talking about the mouth, some people interpret this as saying it speaks English because the lion is also the emblem for modern-day Great Britain. So, is it the traditional countries that Daniel laid out? being echoed again in this beast? I think so. Could it represent some modern countries like Russia and Great Britain? Possibly, uh, because most countries today have followed the Greek philosophy and the Greek political thought, and many of them uh, have the mysticism that ancient Persia and Babylon had. So, It could go either way, really. We don't know for sure. But I kind of lean towards it being based on a lot of Greek political thought and philosophical thought. I also think it will have uh, the mysticism of the Babylonians, maybe, I think, border on Baal worship, and we'll talk about that next session, and also the mysticism and and the false religion of the Muslims from the modern-day Persia or Iran. So I think you'll see a lot of that wrapped up in this beast, this worldwide government. And we'll see a lot of that more clearly next session. So this beast is a worldwide government. It is the empire that Satan is empowering, just like it says in verse 2. And it will be the eighth empire that Satan is empowering over Israel. It has seven heads. So a beast with seven heads means this is the eighth head. It has 10 kings as its ruling body, 10 vassal kings that go under the top king or what we would call the emperor. Now, how do I know that this is the eighth kingdom? Well, in Revelation chapter 17, it goes into a little bit more description. I'll look at it briefly now with you, and we'll go in more detail with it when we study Revelation 17. But it describes the scarlet beast with seven heads, ten horns, no crowns. So it's just talking about the history of this beast, and some of it is not in power yet. And the angel says, an angel says that the different heads represent different kingdoms, mega kingdoms, what we would call empires, and that the sixth head was now ruling. Well, when John wrote this, that was the Roman Empire. 
So we can count backwards from the Roman Empire. Egypt was the first empire that ruled over Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. Then Assyria took over the northern kingdom. Babylon took over the southern kingdom. And then later on, Babylon was taken over by Medo-Persia, the Persian Empire. And that in turn was taken over by the Greek Empire. And then, of course, the Roman Empire. So that's the first six heads, the first six empires represented by the seven heads. In Revelation 17, it says the seventh head only rules for a short time. And there's different theories on what this is. Uh, most people think it was the Ottoman Empire, which officially lasted about 400 years, ruling over Israel. But then in Revelation 17, it says that the scarlet beast itself is the eighth power, the eighth empire. So the eighth empire is the beast with the seven heads. And it says in Revelation 17 that the ten horns represent ten vassal kings that rule with in this empire. So if you look at it with the different chapters, we see this worldwide government rising up. It is based on a ten kingdom confederacy, and it is backed by Satan. It's going to be a very evil world empire, and we'll see a lot of that evil come out in the next few verses. But this kingdom will actually be the eighth attempt of Satan forming a worldwide empire and giving its power, trying to destroy God's people. Now let's look at the characteristics of this empire. You know, it's a lot like Satan. It was a, looks a lot like the red dragon. And like I said, like father, like son, Satan is backing it, empowering this empire and this government. So it will be very wicked. It will be based on a lot of lies and murders and deceit, just like Satan uh, was described as by Jesus. But the chapter goes into some more detail. John in his vision gives us a lot of detail about the characteristics of this beast of the sea, this worldwide government that Satan uh, brought up out of the sea in this vision of John. Let's start in verse 3, Revelation 13, verse 3. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. All the world marveled at this miracle and followed the beast in all. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they worshiped the beast. Is there anyone as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do what he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and all who live in heaven, who are his temple. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to overcome them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones who name, whose names were not written in the book of life, which belongs to the Lamb, who was killed before the world was made. Now, the first startling characteristic of this beast is that it had a head that had a fatal wound. It should have died, but the wound was healed, and it lived. What does that represent? 
Well, since we uh, are pretty sure that these heads represent past empires that was ruled by Satan, I think that this is talking about a former empire being the focus point, the, the impetus behind this world government. Some say it would be like a government, a world empire based on the Roman Empire, the old Holy Roman Empire, and that would be like a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, a head that was dead but then was brought back to life. I think that's a very good theory. I think it is definitely talking about a former empire that is kind of revitalized and reused, if you will, as the basis of this eighth world wide government that Satan is backing. An alternate type of government or empire that this might represent that comes back is Babylon. Some think this might be a resurgence of a new Babylonian government. I think that's less likely because of some of the judgments in the Old Testament made it sound like Babylon would never rise again. So I'm leaning towards this will probably be more along the lines of a Holy Roman Empire, a European-based, maybe a Middle Eastern-based uh, center of government, but it will be a worldwide confederation of ten kings ruling. Now, an alternate theory about this head that was wounded and gets healed and comes back to life is cloning. And a lot of people think this refers to cloning because cloning kind of mimics a resurrection, that they will eventually get to the technology where they can clone a human. Now, I don't think that's what it's talking about because, again, that kind of breaks what the symbolism is of the heads. The heads are clearly symbolic from the key used in Daniel are clearly symbolic of former world powers, these world governments that Satan had backed. But it would be kind of silly of me to ignore this theory, especially since science has made such huge advancements and cloning is going on with animals on a regular basis. So could it be some type of cloning aspect involved in this with one of the human leaders of this government? It could be. I don't think so. But it is interesting, especially when you think how the secular world would look at cloning as eternal life. And maybe that would be a motivation to follow one of the leaders in this world empire, the head leader, the emperor, whatever you want to call them. So I don't know. I'm kind of leaning that this head that is hurt fatally and then comes back is a revived Holy Roman Empire as the basis of this government. Let's go on, though, to verse 4. In verse 4, it says that they worship the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they worship the beast. And then later on, it says, who is able to fight against him? So first of all, let's note how the world government promotes Satan, you know, the worship of Satan, satanic worship. This world power, this beast that rises out of the sea, this worldwide eighth empire of Satan that he has backed, he has brought it forth, and it is encouraging and promoting satanic worship. And this is why I think that Baal worship of the old Babylonian empire could very well be all wrapped up in this. Then it goes on, says that the world government 
becomes identified by one human leader. Look how it says, they worship the dragon for giving the beast such power, this government such power. Then they worship the beast, this government. And then they said, is there anyone as great as the beast? They exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? So at some point, this world power, this world government, this beast from the sea becomes identified by one human leader. In other words, it starts off as a 10 kingdom confederacy. And since it has the body of Greece, it's going to be, you know, uh, spoken about and pushed us that this will be a 10 kingdom confederacy, a democratic world power where each division, each horn, each one of these 10 kings has an equal say and will they'll vote on how to do things with the world. But something happens because it says they start focusing on one person. And this is not unusual, even in governments today. For instance, if I said Joe Biden, you'd immediately think of president and you'd think of America, right? Joe Biden is what people will When they talk about Joe Biden, people will see America. If I talked about Macron, you'd think France. If I talked about Trudeau, you would think about Canada. If I said Adolf Hitler, you immediately would think about old world, pre-World War II Germany. So many times empires can arise or nations can arise and they have a leader that is a focal point of a lot of press, especially in today's world of the modern press, um, then it will start being the uh, representative of the government. People will start seeing that person as the government. And this is very common. So I think what happens is one of these 10 kings gets real popular and everybody starts liking him and they say, who can conquer him? So evidently, one of these 10 kings ends up becoming the top guy. This goes right along with one of Daniel's prophecies. If you remember in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, I read that three of the first horns were wrenched out, roots and all, to make room for this new horn, this little horn, the one that had human eyes and a mouth that was so boastful. So this other horn rises up and wrenches out three horns. And it becomes a power within this 10 kingdom confederacy. It probably takes over three of the smaller kingdoms. And since it it might be through intrigue, he may you know have something on these other kings and they always vote his way. Or it may be that he physically has armies that take them over. And because it says they're wrenched out. However is fulfilled, it's obviously that one of these horns is going to rise up and take over three horns. And that guy becomes the personified image of this worldwide government. And in Revelation, he's nicknamed the beast. And that's where all this confusion starts coming from. See, the first beast that comes out of the sea is a government. But then all of a sudden, this leader, this horn that rises up and takes over three of the other horns, it becomes such a dynamic leader in this world government that people start calling him the beast as the head 
of a government. Just like we said, many people look at heads of governments today as the embodiment of that nation. And that's what's going on here. And this nickname of the beast is only found in Revelation. In 1 John, the Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul calls this same guy, the little horn that Daniel referred to, uh, the beast in Revelation, John called him. But in 2 Thessalonians, Paul called him the man of lawlessness. But all of these nicknames, the beast, the Antichrist, the men of lawlessness, and the little horn of Daniel all refer to the same king. When the kings of the Ten Kingdom Confederacy rises up, uh, some people say it might even be uh, someone within the Ten Kingdoms, that he's not one of the original Ten Kings, and that could very well be. But a person rises up, takes over three of the horns, three of the kingdoms, and he ends up becoming the emperor of this worldwide government. Now, to make it clear for us, I'm going to use John's nickname that he used in his epistle, 1 John. I will start referring to this guy as the Antichrist. And if you notice, not only are the people just running towards this government, the beast of the sea that's backed by Satan, and they start worshiping Satan, it says in verse 4 that they start worshiping this man too. Also, in verse 8, it says, all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. This is talking about the person, the Antichrist. And so they are also beginning to worship this person. Now let's go on about this Antichrist and this worldwide government. It says in verse 5 through 7 that the Antichrist is allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. He's given authority to do what he wants for 42 months. He wages war against God's holy people to overcome them. And he's given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, this follows exactly the prophecies in the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 11. So we see this in Revelation 13, that this Antichrist is fulfillment of not just the prophecies that John is having, this vision in Revelation, but also Daniel's prophecies. And this person is allowed authority to just run havoc over everybody for 42 months. And he wages war during these last 42 months in a way that's just unprecedented against God's holy people, the Jewish people. And we saw the same thing at the end of chapter 12, didn't we? Talked about how the dragon, when the uh, he was cast out of heaven, goes wild and starts trying to get vengeance on all the Jewish people, on the woman, the nation of Israel, for time, times, half a time, three and a half years. And then when he couldn't do that, he goes after all believers, anybody who believes in Jesus. And for those 42 months, they're trying to wipe out everybody. The same thing's mentioned here. And it was mentioned by Daniel. Let's review what we talked about last week. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 through 27. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will cut off, be cut off and have nothing. Remember the prophecy of the 70 weeks? It's talking about how after Jesus is crucified, and we showed you how accurate that prophecy was right to the year that Jesus started his ministry. So he's, he's cut off, he's crucified, and it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean they were all Italians. Uh, they had different nationalities. There are many from the Middle East that were involved in their different armies, their huge battalions that they had um, assigned to that area. So the actual nationality of the Antichrist could be any, uh, any nationality, really, that was involved during that time of the destruction of Rome. But it was the Roman government that did that, and, th- and that's why some people think it might be the revived Roman Empire. But this prince that is to come is the Antichrist. And just like we said last week, listen to what he does. In verse 27, it says this, This prince, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of that week, he, the prince to come, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, one will come who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this is the Antichrist stopping worship. He's uh, he's doing the same thing Antiochus Epiphanes did. He stopped worship. Antiochus did and demanded somebody worship everybody worship a false god Zeus. This Antichrist will be doing the same thing according to Daniel. He will stop all sacrifices, all worship of the one true God. And as you can see in Revelation 13, we've already read people are going to be worshiping him and the devil because of all this worldwide government. And this was the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, just like we read in Daniel. Now let's talk about the probable order of everything we've learned so far about this worldwide government. Let's tie it all together and talk about the probable order of these events being fulfilled. It starts with the first seal. During the last days of the church, we will see uh, nationalism fade from the scene and globalism take root. And we're seeing that now. And eventually, probably over some crisis, that's a combined crisis of the first four seals, the riders of the apocalypse, the uh, wars, uh, or I should say the bloodshed, and uh, also the famines, and then a plague that destroys 25% of the world's population. Somewhere along that time, uh, this globalism movement will start a worldwide government called the Confederation of the Ten Kings by Daniel. Now, during the seals, when all this bad stuff's happening, people are going to be wanting more from this worldwide government. It'll start off probably very bureaucratic, and it will function based on democratic votes from each horn, each division, each of these 10 kings to run, to decide how they're going to rule these on these world policies. And that will not be fast enough, I think. And even though it's based on Greek uh, political theory, it's not going to work. And so during this crisis of leadership, this vacuum of leadership, somebody arises. It may be one of the vassal kings. It may be somebody that was in a kingdom and takes over three kingdoms. But either way, another horn arises, takes over three kingdoms, and this is the Antichrist, the little horn that takes over three horns. And this Antichrist Antichrist takes over, and he ends up becoming the head of this worldwide government. Now, He won't call himself an emperor, I don't think. 
He might, if this is a revived Roman Empire, revived Holy Roman Empire, but he'll probably, following suit with all these totalitarian governments today, call himself a president or, you know, the people's leader or something that sounds so wholesome like that. But he really, he'll be the emperor of this worldwide government and all of Satan's evil and power will be given over to him. Some say he will even be possessed by the devil. I think he'll definitely be possessed by a lot of demons. Whether it be Satan himself, I don't know. But this Antichrist will start running this worldwide government. And again, the last days of the church, we will see the rise of this Ten Kingdom Confederacy. And I think maybe even begin to see the possibility of the rise of this Antichrist that starts taking over at some point during those seals. But something happens during the seals, like I say, and this king arises and takes over. And after the huge wave of persecution, the fifth seal, and then the rapture, again, the world's going to be in torment. And no one's going to know what's happened with 25% of the world's population having died because of the plagues, and then all these people disappear because of the rapture. And there's going to be so much turmoil. I think a lot of countries are going to unite during this time and try and go against Israel. This is in fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog. I think this may uh, be a precursor to that. But I don't think it's going to succeed. We know that from Ezekiel's prophecy. But also, during this time, I think this Antichrist will make a treaty at the end of all the seals. He'll make a treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years, which is coinciding with the seven-year period of time of Jacob's distress, the seven years that God judges the earth. The beginning of it will be marked by this treaty that Daniel talks about with the nation of Israel. And during this first time, the first three and a half years, I should say, of this seven-year period, the trumpets will be blown and God will start having these judgments upon the earth. And because of the turmoil of that, remember the uh, fifth and sixth trumpet are talking about demons and coming out of the pit and possessing people, and these demon-possessed people just running havoc and preying on everyone else in the world and killing a third of the world's population. At that point, sometime during that time, Satan, the great red dragon, goes to war up in heaven and is cast out. Michael and all the archangels and all the other angels cast Satan out of heaven, along with all his followers. And so he is going to wreak vengeance during these last three and a half years. And that's when everything is taken up a notch. That's when this Antichrist starts going after Israel big time. He breaks the treaty according to Daniel, right in the middle of the seven-year period. He breaks the treaty, and then he starts waging war on God's holy people. And that's the same words that Daniel used talking about the Jewish people. And then, it, you know, it, it says that he's going to go after them all and wage war. And in chapter 12, it says, when he can't kill all of Israel, it says, that he will declare war on the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and confess that they belong to Jesus. And so persecution is just going to go wild. Now understand something. Persecution was already occurring 
before this halfway point. It started in the seals, and it continued in the trumpets. Look at verse 5. It says, The beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. He was given authority to do what he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and all who live in heaven who are his temple. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to overcome them. So it doesn't just happen overnight. You know, persecution always starts with propaganda, slandering God's name and slandering his people, just like we see in verses 6 and 7 there. And what's going to happen, and it's going to start during the last days of the church, propaganda going against Christians. Who knows? Maybe they'll say Christians are terrorists because they supported right-wing politicians. Maybe they'll say Christians are terrorists because Christians speak the truth about, I don't know, possible elections being stolen. Maybe they'll be saying all kinds of things like, Abortion's a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Transgenderism is a sin. Maybe they will be speaking the truth of Scripture. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating. But I think when Christians are just being Christians, the salt of the earth, it's going to cause a lot of propaganda, even in the time of the seals, during the last days of the church. Persecution will start. We've seen that with the fifth seal, and it will continue through the trumpets, kind of uh, behind the scenes. Remember, they're going to be persecuting the two prophets. The beast will kill the two prophets. This Antichrist will cause him, them two, to be killed. So they're preaching all during the first half of this seven-year period of judgment, and the 144,000 are running around. They're being persecuted. The two prophets are being persecuted. But after he kills those two prophets, he breaks the treaty with Israel. Everything gets taken up a notch during these last three and a half years. And this is when Satan is just running wild. And it says in Revelation that he is allowed. The beast, the Antichrist, is allowed. So Satan is being allowed to do whatever he wants during these 42 months. And all the people who are worshiping the beast, this government, and worshiping Satan, and worshiping the Antichrist. All these people, who are they? They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life, which belongs to the Lamb who was killed before the world was made. So those who worship the Antichrist and his worldwide government, this beast of the sea, and worship Satan, all of us all wrapped up together, these are, are the people who aren't Christians. And they are choosing to invoke their free will. And instead of believing in the gospel that the 144,000 is spreading and that the church spread before the rapture in its last days and that the uh, two prophets were preaching about, these people, instead of choosing to believe in Jesus and have salvation, are making a willful choice to worship this world power. And it causes them to worship Satan, it said in Revelation chapter 3. It says, I saw one of the, uh, verse 4, I should say, they worship the dragon for giving the beast such power. And then it says later on, they worship the man, the Antichrist that runs 
this worldwide empire, the beast of the sea. So how will the saints during these last days, during the time of Jacob's distress, how will the people of God endure such a uh, awful persecution? Remember, this is being taken up a notch over just the persecution that we've had up until this point. Satan's vengeance from being kicked down and out of heaven is going wild, and he has allowed 42 months just to wreak havoc and overcome the people of God. Such vengeance and wrath being poured out on them. How can the saints, the Christians, the believers, God's people during this time, how can they endure? Well, God gives them the key. John relates this key on how they can endure such awful persecution in Revelation 13, starting in verse 9. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. The people who are destined for prison will be arrested and taken away. Those who are destined for death will be killed. But do not be dismayed, for here is your opportunity to have endurance and faith. So how can believers endure such severe persecution during those days? In fact, how can we endure persecution today when we go through it? It's all the same way. First, you must understand the sovereignty of God's will versus our own free will. You must understand God's sovereignty versus our free will. You see, God is sovereign. And as a sovereign God, he did choose, he made a sovereign choice to allow his people, his creation, humans, to have free will choice concerning their salvation. Every human is given this free will choice to choose whether or not they will worship the one true God, or as we see in Revelation 13, worship the devil. Whether they're worshiping false gods like idols or the devil himself, Every human being has that free will choice, and it was given to you by God's sovereign will. God does not lose his sovereignty just because he gives you free choice to choose your eternal destination. God doesn't choose who goes to heaven or hell. No, it's each person's choice. Each person has free will. They must choose if they're going to believe in Jesus and be saved. They must believe. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is the one thing you must do. You must believe in God and the one he sent. So each person's got that free will choice because God in his sovereign power gave it to us. So it's up to each individual to choose who they're going to believe in and whether they ultimately go to heaven or hell because of that choice of their belief. But outside this realm of free will pertaining to our salvation, God is sovereign. His plan will take place. His will is always done. And that destiny, that plan is always fulfilled. So that's the first thing you have to do is understand God's sovereignty versus your free will. The next key to enduring such persecution is that we must accept destiny, God's destiny for us as revealed in scripture. In Psalm 139 verse 16, we read, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. 
So God is in sovereign control of the day you are born and the day you will die. And that's kind of what it's saying here. In, in Revelation, verse 9, it's saying, look, you need to understand this. And in verse 10, it goes on to say, if you are destined to be arrested, you're going to be arrested. If you're destined to be killed during this persecution, you'll be killed. Don't be dismayed. You know, dismayed. Don't, don't just freak out about it. Know that God's got a plan and trust your destiny. Trust him with your destiny. Trust him in his plan and with your life. And we can trust him. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says this. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, see, this clearly says that God's got a plan. And he's going to work it all out for what's good for you. And what's the good? Well, anybody he who's saved, you know, anybody who's chosen to believe in Jesus, his plan is that he has made a destiny for you that will conform you to the image of his son. That's what it's talking about. So yes, you choose your salvation, but after you're his child, you have a he has a plan and he will conform you to the image of his son. So if you're going through persecution, it's because he's allowing it and he's going to use that to make you more like Jesus. So we can trust the destiny. We need to accept it. And we need to understand that God does have a plan for our lives and to trust it. Finally, we need to submit to God's destiny for our life. You know, it does no good to fight against God's will. You have free choice about your salvation, but there's nothing you can do to let, make God let you live longer. There's nothing you can do to be, make yourself be born, is there? You're born because God said it was time to be born. And he gave you parents to allow that to happen. You die when he calls you home as a child of God. That's it. You have free will for your salvation, but he has a plan for your life. And the purpose of this plan is to make you more like his son. That's your destiny. So submit to God's destiny. Accept it and submit to God's destiny for your life. And this gives you that endurance and faith. So when you're going through severe persecution like it talked about in Revelation, yes, you may be facing imprisonment, but just submit to it. God's in control. You may be facing death, but submit to it. God is in control. And if you would do this, if you start learning to trust God totally now and relax in his plan for your life, relax in his destiny for your life, you will have such freedom and peace. Why did the apostles sing when they were in prison in the book of Acts? Because they knew Jesus was in charge, and this was his plan. And they could rest in the plan for their lives that he had given them. They can rest in the destiny that he has made for their lives. And also, not only does it result in freedom and peace, the Bible also teaches that it results in becoming victorious conquerors. That's right. Persecution always results in us becoming victorious conquerors.
like a conqueror. In Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, we read this. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God who gave us Christ also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Will God? No, he is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No, for he is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Even scriptures say, for your sake we were killed every day. We were being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? You see, by submitting to God's destiny for your life, not only does it allow us to prove our endurance and faith, but it results in freedom and peace. And just like we read, it allows us to become victorious, victorious conquerors. And that is worth everything. And that is something to look forward to. And unbelievers, they don't have that. They have nothing to look forward to. These people that worship the beast, all they have to look forward to is a miserable, rotten life, the judgment of God being poured out on them on earth, and an eternity in hell. Because they chose to love the darkness and follow Satan and worship him instead of worshiping Jesus and following Jesus. That's what they have to look forward to. And yes, is it going to be rough for believers? Yes, it always is. Whether you were believers in China before uh, World War II and right afterwards when the communists took over and hunted down Christians, whether you were Christians during the days of the Soviet Union when they uh, had to go worship in the woods because they were shutting down all the real churches. Whether you're a Christian in any of the countries that are being persecuted now, whether you're a Christian that lives in the last days of the church during the seals, when the great persecution of the fifth seal, martyrdom, is unleashed, or whether you're a Christian during the time of Jacob's distress, the seven-year period, when Satan's worldwide empire wreaks havoc and hunts down every believer. No matter when you're a Christian, persecution's always tough. God will be there for us, though. Jesus never promised believers an easy life. 
just a victorious one. So yes, will it be tough? Oh yeah, but it'll be worth it. So until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.